Welcome back to another episode of Sean Meds Do Baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. And we're doing some baseball. That's right. We're a bi-weekly baseball history podcast where the story catcher doesn't know what the story pitcher is going to be telling them. That's right. Yes. And were you going to say something there? I was. I, okay, I didn't ahead. know. No, I actually didn't know what I was going to say. So I was really excited that you were. <laughs> that I jumped in there? Yeah. I yeah. was going to say that uh, once again for the second episode in a row, we have a guest. We do have a guest. Today. I want to welcome our friend uh, Spencer LeVon into the Sean's bedroom studio right now. Office studio. <laughs> hey, dudes. Hey. What's going on? Uh, Not much, Spencer. How are you? Good, man. I'm ready to do some baseball. Yeah, you ready to do some baseball? I feel like I feel like there's a lot to be done. Yeah, there definitely is. You know, we'll just get as much baseball done as we can. Yeah, and we're going to have some dinner. <laughs> well, yeah, it's 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 what we do here. <laughs> generally eat in baseball. Um well, welcome Spence. We're you... sorry it took so long to get yes. you on here. Hey, you know, I heard that you we're waiting for Sean to ask you. And I was playing hard to get, but I, I'm glad that uh, it finally worked out. I, I just want to point out that he just threw me under the bus there, eh? <laughs> it's like, you don't know him? You don't know him? I know. I've, like, lived with fair him. Fair enough, fair enough. Kind I'm, of. That's why I went ahead and apologized. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, right. So I'll, yeah, I'll just say this. I, uh, I forgive, Yeah. but I... Do not and will not forget. Okay. And also, I don't forgive. Okay. <laughs> so, anyways. All right. Well, so, it's Spencer. pointless for me to apologize, is what you're saying. Um, Spencer, <laughs> you have a lot of amazing projects and stuff that you do. Obviously, uh, you do a lot of music. Yeah. Uh, you do a lot of other amazing creative works. Uh, you got anything to plug? Any shows coming up? Anything uh, coming down the pipeline? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, April 29th, I'm playing at the Emmett Ray. It's like a uh, jazz club with uh, singing, playing piano. Oh, we'll do a duet with uh, Janelle Heath, just a fabulous vocalist. We're just going to bang out old tunes at the Emmett Ray, the 29th of April. And May 6th, they're doing a, I'm doing a death metal show with my band Faceplant. Nice. Just, the, ex- just a great contrast there. Yeah. Seven yeah. days after one another, just <laughs> completely different life. It's uh, It's fun. All right. Well, that's awesome. So those are both coming up in the next month. Amazing. Uh, if you're listening to this in the week that is coming out, come check out Spence. Amazing and versatile musician, as you just heard. Well, thank uh, you. And if you have a piano, are you still tuning pianos? I sure am. Yeah, I have a business, pianotuners.ca. Yeah, so. definitely. If you have a piano, tune that shit. <laughs> <laughs> it makes a huge difference. It, it makes a huge difference. It really does. Moving your pianos takes it right out of tune let me tell you yeah <laughs> it's a it's a duo yes. you need your movers and your tuners anyways we're gonna move forward spence good yeah great to be here boys Let's oh my goodness do it yeah so happy to have you buddy yeah so we're gonna do some baseball with our buddy spence Edzy is 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 pitching to us today what you got bud uh well before i get started here before i take the mound i want to say follow us on twitter at doing baseball and Instagram at doing.baseball. And if you've been following us on Instagram, you've kind of maybe seen that we have a TikTok now. Been Ooh. maybe doing some some 
I don't know. I don't really know. I'm a little bit old for it, I feel like. But hey, if anyway. Joey Votto can do it, you can do it. Joey Votto's on there? Joey Votto's doing amazing TikTok. Follow him. Okay, anyway. we're going to do okay. this afterwards. <laughs> yeah, we're going to skip over that right now. Anyway, uh, Spence, I'm glad that you're here, and I'm glad you kind of touched upon your uh, musical career there, because this episode, that, I think that's going to come in quite handy. And uh, I'm, I'm not really going to say too, too much about it. I'm going to get started with uh, November 6, 1948 was the birthday of one Glenn Fry. Do you know Glenn oh, Fry, right. Sean? I imagine you know Glenn Fry. <laughs> yeah. Glenn Fry? Yeah. Um, it's, it rings a bell. I'm just going to say that. I'll wait. Okay. November 6, 1948 in Detroit, Michigan, Glenn Fry was born. He learned to play piano by the age of five years old. And uh, switched to guitar by the age of 12, having seen the Beatles come to town. His aunt took him to a show. Uh, the Beatles were in town at the Detroit Olympia. And uh, he grew up, his father worked in a factory. His mother baked pies at General Motors. Um, <laughs> wait a minute. Wait. His dad worked in a pie factory and his mother baked at General Motors? <laughs> no, no. His, his, his father I'm just, just saying. Yeah. I'm just saying. That would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. It would be, but no. His father just worked at a factory, and his mother baked pies for General Motors. So, uh, How as many I said, pies to General Motors need. I imagine a lot. I mean, obviously, a lot. There was a whole division of people that baked pies for them. That's amazing. Okay, so as I said, he learned to play uh, piano by age five, and in a documentary about his life, uh, he mentioned that that alone could get you beat up after school in suburban Detroit. Being, I feel like a lot of things would probably get you to the back <laughs> school in suburban Detroit. That's, that's probably true. Uh, so when he was at the Beatles concert, he recalled a girl standing in the row ahead of his who fell back delirious into his arm, murmuring, Paul, oh, Paul. <laughs> that could have been me. <laughs> so to which he thought, oh, my God, having developed a budding interest in girls by this time. So he thought, maybe that's something, uh, that's something that I should do. So uh, that's we'll we'll take a step away from Glenn Fry's life right now, and we'll go and talk to another person or talk about another person who's probably going to give away the the band that I'm talking about. But uh, Don Henley, okay, was born July twenty second, nineteen forty seven, and had a similar experience of inspiration when he saw the Beatles while watching television with his parents in his hometown of Linden, Texas. And he said it struck him like a bolt of lightning. Linden was a small northeastern Texas town, which was mostly a farming community with one stoplight. Uh, uh, Henley recalled that when he was living there, it was about 25 to 2,600 people. Uh, most people worked in the agriculture industry and others worked at the nearby steel mill, which produced steel for the automotive industry. And pies. And yeah, imagine they had a pie. They had a pie. <laughs> Definitely. I... <laughs> uh, musically, this area was a bit of a cultural crossroads where the old South meets the West. It was uh, the birthplace of Scott Joplin and T-Bone Walker. Ooh. So Henley's parents were music fans. So he grew up with all different types of musical influences. Tastes were also diversified heavily by the music he would listen to on the station in New Orleans that had such a far reach due to its 50,000 watt signal. So Henley's father also would listen to KWKH Louisiana, 
where the when the two would go to work together, and the station had a show called the Louisiana Hayride, which was the the uh, first radio broadcast of Elvis in 1954. So you know he's they're getting all these like you know musical influences coming from some of the greatest of all time or whatever. So uh, Don first ventured into the world of drumming, tapping little rhythms and cadences on his school books with his fingers and then pencils, driving his classmates crazy until a friend finally suggested, why don't you just play drums? Which is, I guess, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, So Henley then cobbled together a secondhand set and played them developing his craft until his mother one day told him to get in the car and she drove him an hour and a half to Sulphur Springs and bought him a sparkling red drum kit from McKay Music Company. So he started out in a Dixieland jazz band that had no vocals. Interesting. Yeah, so they're just jamming away there in Texas. And Fry, back in Detroit, was also obviously growing up and by the mid-60s was in high school, and one night he attended a party where there were four freshmen playing in a band. Fry was a junior, and he approached them and asked if they knew Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones, because he could sing it. So he just like kind of arrogantly walks up to these dudes. He's like, hey, do you guys know Satisfaction by the Stones? Because I can sing it. <laughs> Man, that's the sort of thing I do with a couple of Budweiser's, you know? Oh, uh, I think I've uh, seen you do yeah, that. It's, <laughs> it's usually met with, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, absolutely not. This was not met with no, and they let him get up on stage, and I guess they liked him because he became the singer of the Subterraneans. So the next year, in 1967, Fry formed another group in Detroit called The Mushrooms and met Bob Seger, who helped the band secure management and a recording contract with Hideout Records. Seger also wrote and recorded the first single, Such a Lovely Child. So Glenn Fry is not even 20 years old and he's got his foot in the door of the music industry. In 1968, Seeger recorded his hit song Ramblin' Gamblin' Man, and Bob truly took Glenn under his wing. Uh, well, Glenn was actually on that recording. You can hear him like come out in the first chorus. Uh, so Bob truly took him under his wing and encouraged him to write his own material. I guess Seeger saw the ambition. Glenn asked him, quote, well, what if the songs are bad? And Bob said, well, they're going to be bad. But you just keep writing songs and writing songs until eventually you'll write a good song. So uh, Fry and Seeger actually intended to start a band together with Glenn on bass, but the kibosh was put on that by Fry's mother when she caught Glenn smoking pot with Bob. <coughs> oh, mom! Yeah, <laughs> but he's Bob Seeger. Apparently, she by the sounds of it, she actually like went down there and just like. Broke it up and like just yanked him out of the room by his ear. Oh, yeah. Fry's all stoned up, just so embarrassed. Yeah, so he doesn't get to be in this band with Bob Seeger. So he's and he's also grounded and couldn't yeah. play with his baseball cards for uh, a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, so he he uh, has to start another band or joins another band called The Four of Us and begins to get into the California sound of bands like The Birds, Buffalo Springfield, and The Beach Boys. And the band adopted that sound, and Glenn really learned how to sing harmonies in this band, like the sound that would, you know, make him famous later in his career. Yes. Uh, so Glenn has had some mild success in the music business, 
But it is at this point in 1968 where things start to move through the connections Glenn makes. In Detroit at the time, there was an all-girl group called the Mama Cats. And in this group was a woman Glenn dated named Joe Slywin, along with her sister Alexandra. Did he date both of them? No. Okay, just the one. No, just, yeah, it kind of worded that funny. Yeah, you there. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I no. was like, well, Sorry. you so know. So the story's okay. getting pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the Mama Cats had moved to Los Angeles in 68 and changed their name to Honey Limited. And they were another harmonious style vocal band. Just seemed like everybody was doing at the time. You couldn't yeah. have a band if everybody didn't sing well. So uh, Fry at this point follows them to L.A. hoping to reconnect with Joan. And he was introduced uh, by Joan's sister to J.D. Souther, who she was dating at the time. And he goes back to Detroit for three weeks, but then returns to Los Angeles and forms the duo Long Branch Penny Whistle with Souther. <laughs> Long <laughs> Branch, like Long Branch Penny Whistle. That yeah. is just like a kind of like a rock country crossover, similar to like the Flying Burrito Brothers. And right. Dillard. I guess there was it, people didn't mind a goofy name back then. No. No. There was yeah. They, is this, yeah. And this is Glenn Fry. No. Yes. Yes. Yeah, this, this is Glenn Fry. This is why Seeger. He also meant it for band names. Just keep. She, yeah, just, <laughs> some bands are gonna be terrible. Yeah. Your names are gonna be awful. Yeah. But eventually just, you'll come up. So with guys, you know how the you know we're called the mushrooms, and it's kind of like we're getting our asses kicked a lot in Detroit still. <laughs> with the adults. Yeah. Uh, what if we change it to the Penny Whistle Doughboys or whatever the hell? <laughs> That'll, that'll help us get the whistle. chicks. <laughs> yeah. So Long Branch Penny Whistle is going on in uh, L.A. now, and they signed with Amos Records, and they released an album with songs Run Boy Run, Rebecca, and Bring Back Funky Women. <laughs> I'm not sure where the funky women went. Yeah, I, at least, yeah, at least there's a concerted effort to bring them back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, this is our protest. <laughs> So Fry and Souther lived in the same apartment building for a brief period with Jackson Brown, who they met through the scene. And Fry described in the History of the Eagles documentary that it was by listening to Jackson work in the apartment beneath his that he learned how to write and hone his craft. He said he would hear Jackson play the first verse and chorus of a song 20 times, and then he'd hear a kettle whistling and it would stop for a while. Ten minutes later, he'd hear Jackson playing again but there would be a second verse and he'd play that 20 times and then the kettle would whistle again and he'd stop and he'd just repeat the process, adding things and changing a word here or there until it was perfect. And Glenn realized, oh, that's how you do it with elbow grease, time, thought and persistence. J.D. Souther also says in the in the documentaries, like, I fucking hate every song by Jackson Brown because I've heard them a billion fucking times back to front. <laughs> you think living above a famous artist would be great? Yeah. You, you're, just, you're hungover trying to make a Denver omelet and you yeah. have exactly. to listen to Stay by Jackson Brown yeah, exactly. for 20 minutes, followed by the sound of a whistle. Yeah. And then he gets into, which is another song that annoys you. It's brutal. Doctor My Eyes is a great song, but god damn it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's going on in LA. And then back in Texas, still 1968, Don Henley was in a group called Felicity. And he one night he approached Kenny Rogers while he was touring through Dallas. And he invited him to see their show. So Kenny at first declined saying, like, I, you know, I don't really do that thing. I just don't come and watch anybody's band that comes and tells me to come and watch them but i guess henley was convincing somehow so he convinced him to come and rogers obliged and rogers was impressed 
So he invited the band to live and record with him for four months. You guys had a great show. Well, you come on, uh, yeah. just come on down. Uh, you can live with me. I got some chicken. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so they changed their name to Shiloh and released an album, which was also on Amos Records. Uh-huh. So that's the connection, which eventually brought Don Henley and Glenn Fry together in Los Angeles, and they bonded over old cars and the fact that they both their dads worked in the automotive industry. And in the early days of their friendship, they'd drive around in Fry's 55 Chevy nickname Gladys. So you got, what I'm kind of trying to paint is that you got these two like kind of jockish guys like running around in the LA scene where it's like a little bit more of like artsy hippies, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um. Well, this is a little bit post hippie, right? Like we're moving into the 70s yeah, here, right? Yeah. Like we're, we're getting into the. The, the age of rock, but also, like, soft rock. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, at the time in L.A., the Troubadour was the happening club to be seen, at, or to see and be seen at. Mm-hmm. So, it was, uh, you know, one of, if not the focal points for the folk singer-songwriter scene. The likes of Joni Mitchell, The Birds, Jackson Brown, Carole King, and James Taylor. Uh, Buffalo Springfield debuted there in 1966. Elton John's first American show was there in 1970. Uh, it was also the club that Lenny Bruce was arrested at for saying schmuck on stage. <laughs> he said schmuck? He said on? schmuck on stage. I can't believe he said that on stage. I can't believe he said it either. And they arrested him for it. So, <laughs> later in the 70s, Cheech and Chong and, and uh, Steve Martin were discovered there. Uh, in the 70s, it hosted punk and new wave scene bands like Red Cross, Bad Religion, Meat Puppets, Flipper, Napalm Death, Melvins. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the 80s, the glam and hair metal scene like Wasp, Rat, Warrant, Poison, L.A. Guns, Motley yep. Crue. We're getting there. I'm digressing a bit. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're going like through. I, we started with like an Eagles history. Yeah, and now, now we're we on the Troubadour to... history. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're, we're moving through history quickly here. Yeah. Yeah. Watch the decline of Western civilization <laughs> part yeah. two yeah. to fill in the blanks. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to get to baseball eventually. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Back at the turn of the 60s and in the 70s, the Troubadour on Mondays hosted what was known as Hoot Night, which was an open stage. And at the time, one of the big stars that I think she kind of actually like started showing up on this hoot night more often was Linda Ronstad mm-hmm. and Linda's manager John Boylan made plans to take Ronstad out on the road and needed players who could play and sing so he approached Glenn and offered him 250 bucks a week to go on this tour so Glenn uh, introduced himself to Bo- or sorry uh, Linda found Don and then Don introduced Glenn introduced Don to Boylan, and then he went to audition at a small house in Laurel Canyon, and he was a big fan of Ronstadt, so, you know, he knew the songs back to front, so nailed the audition. Got the gig. Got the gig. So, it's 1970, and Frey and and Hanley are now in a band together. With Linda Ronstadt. With Linda Ronstadt. Cool. Wow. Yeah, pretty stacked. Pretty stacked there. Yeah. So, uh, you know... They're, they're kind of early in their career, so there's not a lot of money. So they're roommates on tour. So these guys are on tour, you know, partying together. with. And Linda Ronstadt could drink with the boys, too. So they were pounding whiskey every night with mm-hmm. Linda. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Boylan, the manager, loved the way that the two played with Linda and uh, wanted to build kind of a super group backing band. 
but Henley and Fry were at a crossroads in their career and really just wanted to be in a band with each other. So they told Ronstadt and Boylan that they'd prefer to go their own way. And the two were nothing short of gracious. They gave them their blessing, full support, and actually were even like, you should go and get Bernie Ledden for your band. So they go and get Bernie Ledden, who was friends with Doug Dillard, who was uh, in that Dillard and Clark group that uh, was in the scene there. he was also in the Flying Burrito Brothers and recorded on Burrito Deluxe and the self-titled LP, but made a departure after Mastermind Graham Parsons left. And after growing tired of their success, he took off out of there, moonlighted in Ronstadt's band a bit, and then through this connection was hooked up with Fry and Henley. So we got the, the teams formed? Sort of. We got three guys now. We, we got, got two three. guitars and a drummer. All right. right. We got two guitars and drummers, so we need a bass Eagles player. Eagles assemble. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we need a bass player, right? I also want to say that I'm fairly certain you guys probably know better than me, but the sentence that Glenn, all Glenn Fry and, and Jeff Healy want to do is play together. Don Henley? Don Henley. <laughs> I'm just mixing in other yeah. musicians. Don, I'm fairly certain that that sentiment doesn't last very long. Am I am I correct? Well, it's... it's There's some animosity throughout their career, but they're actually the guys who, like, stay together the most. Oh, okay. All right. See, I am wrong. Yeah. All right. All right. So, yeah. Eagles Assemble. Let's go. Eagles Assemble. They need a bass player. <laughs> Glenn knew and was a fan of a band called Poco, who had a bass-playing singer with a soaring high vocal named Randy Meisner. And Glenn asked him to join up, and without much convincing, Randy was in, and the Eagles were assembled. <laughs> so, they just pressed their t- ponytails together yeah, and just exactly. grow su- superpowers. Yeah, it was like a four, it was a four-pointed joint that they just like all... <laughs> So <laughs> then Glenn Fry's mom shows yeah. beats the shit out of them. It's like absolutely oh, not. I'm Somebody breaking. eat it. Somebody eat it. <laughs> That's right. yeah, it's hard to take someone seriously once you see their mom beat the shit out of them with a slipper yeah. and band well, practice. That's, That's why he had to leave of. Detroit. Yeah. Leave Bob Seeger, every time he saw that guy for the rest of his life, get like, through him a beating. Oh well, yeah. night. Like as soon as he left the room, he'd turn to the guy next to him, and Bob Seeger would be like, "Hey." That guy's mom was, he was 20. <laughs> yeah. mom like, him out by his ear. <laughs> so back at this time, the big record label, at least in L.A., was David Geffen's Asylum, which had Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, blah, blah, blah. So the four mus- musicians in the budding new band approached Geffen, and at one point, Bernie Ledden said gruffly, well, do you want us or not? And... I guess he did, so he signed them. It's a uh, hard, hard bargaining. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but he tells them they have to go back to the drawing board and go rehearse some more and write some more songs. So, they go off to Aspen, and they hone their sound and write some songs, playing at this Aspen club every night. And eventually, it's decide it's time to cut a record. So they start searching for a producer. And Glyn Johns kept coming up on records they liked, like records by The Who and The Stones and Zeppelin and stuff. So they invited Johns to come see them in Aspen. And at first, Johns wasn't overly impressed. He said he felt they were confused. Glenn Fry wanted to be in a rock and roll band, and Bernie Ledden was one of the greatest acoustic country players out there. So <laughs> he passed. 
Mm. But he gave them a second chance because they invited him back, I guess. Or he, I think he decided to go back for a rehearsal. He was kind of like, maybe you catch them on an off night, you know. Maybe that's not a good venue, whatever. So he goes back to watch them at a rehearsal. And he's still not into it. So, <laughs> so he's like, you know what? Yeah. Like, yeah he goes back got, a third time. He hates it. <laughs> it's worse. You guys don't know what you are, right? Like, that's kind of what he, you guys are stuck on the fence. Pick one or the other is kind of his opinion about it. Mm-hmm. So he, so he, you know, is not into it. And then they decide to break for lunch. But they say, you know, well, let's sing, let's sing Glenn that one ballad before we go for lunch or whatever. Right. And they start singing this song that has like an awesome four part harmony, which like, you know, at that point he's like, Oh, okay. I get it. Like that's, if I can harness that, right. You know, that's, we're going to make that your sound kind of thing. Right. So they head off to London and now they start recording with Glenn Johns and what everyone thought would be a happy process quickly turned out to be a butting of heads. Again, that's, Illustri- trying to illustrate that the Eagles are kind of dicks. It's kind of what. It's kind I of what. I think there's that. like a five-hour documentary on that. Yeah, there is. There is. Yeah. Um, so Henley and Johns clashed over the drum recordings. Johns would simply place three mics around the whole drum kit because uh-huh. he was used to guys like Keith Mo- Moon and fucking John Bonham. So yeah. you know what do you what do you need individual miking for? Yeah. Henley would want the kick to be louder in the mix, which Johns would just tell him, quote, well, if you want it louder, hit it louder. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I don't know how much anyone really knows about Don Henley, but if you know a little bit about Don Henley, you probably know that that's, that's pissing him off. You know, <laughs> yeah. even, even though he's a rookie, this like his first like recording session kind of thing, that's probably just getting, it, it, it's grinding his gears, right? So... John also had some rules that, quote, didn't suit me and some of the other guys, Fry said. And the <laughs> rules were no getting high in the studio and no drinking in the studio. Ooh. You know, uh, John's had, like like I said, worked with the Stones and stuff. So, you know, having to wait on guys like Keith Richards, oh, probably, you know, was yeah. like, all right, fuck that. We're, we're going straight shooter for this. I'm not, don't waste my time. Right? So... <laughs> So Henley agreed, though. So there you go. That's kind of maybe the first sort of seed of some, maybe a bit of disagreement between those two guys, Sean. But as a rule, they're kind of the two that stick together through this. So anyway, so this album comes out and it's got uh, Peaceful, Easy Feeling on it, Witchy Woman, Take It Easy. Those are the three singles and stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, they've got an album despite the clashes with Johns and now they need a cover. So they get set up with Gary Burden and Henry Diltz, who did some work with Crosby, Stills, Nash, Joni Mitchell, Mamas and the Papas. And these guys were kind of like spiritual hippie kind of dudes who had this kind of like candid, like non-invasive style of, of, uh, of, of shooting. But they also like would kind of push the bands outside of their comfort zones and stuff, like take them to weird places and take them on trips. Oh, so they came up with this plan to shoot the album cover where uh, they would go to the Troubadour until closing uh-huh. and then drive to Joshua Tree. Okay. And take some, they, what they would bring with them were some peyote buttons, trail mix, <laughs> tequila, 
water and blankets. <laughs> Generally what you need when you're going to Joshua. Exactly. <laughs> so they get to the place about 4.30 and they take one peyote button and start hiking up to this special place up on the rocks. And so they start setting up the campsite and boiling some peyote tea. And just as the sun starts coming up is when the first button starts coming on. I, I just love that drugs can be sold in button form. Like, you know, I wish it was just like, can I get a couple of buttons of Coke and uh, a zipper of heroin? Maybe, you know, it's just like, like nice little cute words. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's like, what are we, teddy bears? No, let's get effed up. Yeah. Be a shot. So a button on me, brother. So. Uh, while they're tripping at the camp here, Glenn leaves and goes to go to the bathroom. He And he heard the others shouting, Eagle! Eagle! <laughs> so he looks up and there's this eagle that like comes soaring over and he's tripping. And he kind of thinks that the eagle looks sort of smugly at them as they're like, you know, he's struggling to get his pants <laughs> back up. And he's got his dick in his hand. And the eagle's like, the eagles, huh? <laughs> like, fuck you guys. Like, you know, like... <laughs> So the album cover ended up being an eagle flying over Joshua Tree, designed to be like an open poster with the eagles like laying at this campfire at the bottom. But I guess Geffen like didn't consult any of them and they just folded it all shut and then folded it the other way and glued everything shut so there was no way to open it up. So they were kind of mad about, you know... How that their I guess their creative vision wasn't really taken into consideration. You made a phone call from a payphone. You said you were high on peyote and explained something to us. You didn't actually. And do then you anything. just handed the pictures in. You didn't tell us anything. You didn't tell us anything. <laughs> you said an eagle smiled at you, and now you're the eagles. Yeah. So. Anyway, in the documentary, you can kind of feel the bitterness from like the eagles and the photographers' camp for yeah. them being like, you know. They didn't respect us kind of thing. So anyway, so it comes out June 1st, 1972, debuts at number 102 on the U.S. Billboard 200, and it peaked at number 22 after six weeks. It got decent reviews. Rolling Stone gave it three and a half stars. Bud Scapa wrote in Rolling Stone, quote, the album is right behind Jackson Brown's record as the best first album this year, and I could be persuaded to remove the word first from that statement. Oh. So, I mean, it, I I mean it's, it. it sounds like a nice compliment, but it's kind of weird that, like, they're like, well, if you like it, that, like, it's just, they're kind of wishy-washy, right? They're like, you're saying you like it, it could be better than Jackson Brown's, but it's kind of the best first album of the year. But, you know, like, yeah. I don't know. They're kind of flip-flopping over the, all over the place. And, you know, I think that probably rubs the Eagles the wrong way because they're a little bit egotistical. Mm-hmm. Um, so they come together to write another album, and Glenn and Dawn started making more of an effort to write songs together. And this is the one that has uh, Tequila Sunrise, Desperado, and Outlaw Man on it. And all these guys were in the scene at this time were fascinated with the outlaw gangs of the old West and thought it was a suitable analogy for the bands in the music industry. Yeah, like living like outlaws on the road. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. yeah, and like, you know, they're they're like they're being chased down by like record companies and shit. I don't know. It's and kinda cops of, for yeah. their 
Really <laughs> yeah, I feel go. like that trope is like so lame now, but at the time it was probably like that's yeah, the coolest that's, thing ever. That's, yeah, that's true. So they so they write this cowboy album, and on the back cover, the band and, and their friends are laid like tied dead on like a boardwalk, you know, and they're they're being stood over by the managers and executives who are like all dressed as lawmen, and they're like all tied up there on the on the on the ground. And this and, time Geffen was like, eh, that's all right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we can definitely raise that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but it was not, it, it was not met with as much critical reception and was lackluster in sales as well. It debuted at number 145 on the US 200 and only rose to 41 after eight weeks. Paul Gambaccini of Rolling Stone gave it only three stars this time. And wrote, quote, the beautiful thing about it is that although it is a unified set of songs, it is not a rock opera, a concept album, or anything pretending to be much more than a set of good tunes that just happen to fit together. Quote, Desperado won't cure your hangover or revalue the dollar, but it will give you many good times. With their second consecutive job well done, the Eagles are on a winning streak. So... I mean, again, it's like, it's not a bad review, but they're like not really, you know, they're not re- seem to be really s- too stoked on anything the Eagles do, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, well, we, we gave your record three mez out of, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. That's> the- <laughs> yeah. yeah. You like music? Check this out. <laughs> yeah. 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 Do you need something to occupy your ears for the next 45 minutes? Oh, yeah. Are you looking for, do it. Are you looking for something that's just okay? Yeah. Yeah. Check out Desperado e- by the Eagles. <laughs> yeah. So I think uh, this, again, like, was taken a little bit harshly by the band, you know, especially because, like, like, they were so stoked on it, right? They were like, this would be fucking awesome. We're like cowboys, you know, like, and, like, they, like, really wrote it as, like, an expression of, like, this is what we're, like, on the road, you know, and everyone was kind of like, yeah, whatever, man. You know? <laughs> Don Henley's just like, oh, I just got these really expensive boots. Yeah. For nothing. <laughs> yeah, sucks. Exactly. Yeah, got this fucking bolo tie. Yeah. What am I going to do with this? It's got now? my ears pierced. I got to, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, anyway, so they, so they, because of that, they kind of start to move a little bit away from the country sound and more towards the rock sound so they head off to london again to record with glenn johns but at this point the relationship had soured completely you know the eagles wanted more rock and johns thought they were better at country so they would get in disputes over the quality of their takes and johns often would just want to move on and the eagles at this point in their career wanted to have more say in the production of their sound and they felt that their vocals were too wet with reverb and echo and stuff and glenn johns was like that's my fucking echo like that's my that's my signature sound don't fucking touch my echo you know so like yeah they were like all right so this isn't working so so they fired johns after only two songs so he's got two songs on this album but they go and find a new guy and their manager uh irving azoff was managing joe walsh and yes and showed Don and Glenn some of his music uh, to show how they could kind of get a little bit edgier. So they went to Walsh's producer, Bill Simzik. After a short interview, they asked three questions. Can we do drugs and alcohol in the studio? (laughs) 
Will you let us control how much echo is on our vocals? And will you mic each drum individually? <laughs> <laughs> to which Bill responded yes to all three questions. So he was hired to record the rest of the album, which would become On the Border, released March 22nd, 1974. And it was the most commercially successful of the first three albums, uh, debuting at number 50 on the Billboard 200, peaking at number 17 after six weeks, and Rolling Stone, again, gave it only three stars. So, And is this out of four or five? Set of five. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's rough. It's, you know, I'm really harping on the, the, the relationship between the Eagles and Rolling Stones here, and it'll come into play. You'll see why. But Yeah, we're going like a really deep dive into the Eagles I'm loving here. This. this is we, great, we but are, I was not expecting this you'll, whatsoever. You'll see. Baseball is coming up soon. All it's right. coming up soon. All right, all right. Janet, I believe in you. Janet Maislin wrote the review and found the album, quote, competent and commercial, but was disappointed that it didn't live up to the potential for bigger things shown in Desperado. So I guess even though Rolling Stone, the pre it was a different writer, right? So the the previous article wasn't that positive, but she was like, I, I see the potential, you know, and I guess for her it didn't live up to it. But still, it's a little backhanded. Calling somebody competent is like just be like that's the bare minimum, right? Yeah. Like competence right, yeah, is yeah. is not uh, <laughs> is like yeah, you well, should be competent. <laughs> true, yeah, that's true, true. Yeah, they're just the bare minimum, yeah. you know. So uh, quote, just too many intrusive guitar parts here too many solos that smack of gratuitous heaviness most of the arrangements seem to lose touch with the material somewhere mid-song so that's not good that's not good things to say to them but judged she judged the record quote a tight and likable collection with nine potential singles working in its favor and only one dud to weigh it down and said it's, quote, good enough to make up in high spirits what it lacks in purposefulness. <laughs> I don't know. That, that last part I can kind of see. Like, you don't really... It's like, Eagles are like the, the hot dog of music. Like, yeah, that was good, but I'm not really full. Yeah, yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, yeah, oh, and boy. I, I and I agree. Like, listening, and I should, I'll mention now, this, this, I'm going to put a link. This, this out, this story comes with a playlist. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. um... But yeah, I kind of noticed that too. Like listening to the Eagles compared to a lot of the bands that even some of the guys in the Eagles were in before they were in the Eagles just are way less bland than the Eagles, you know? So anyway, but you know, I'm not here to rip on the Eagles too, too much. I, am. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I was like, so that's kind of another, even actually a little bit more negative review by Rolling Stone. This is the album that had, uh, the singles were already gone. James Dean and best of my love. Uh, so as I mentioned up there, there's now three guitars, you yeah, know, the set? Joe Walsh, three guitars. Now. Well, Joe Walsh hasn't joined yet. So oh, it's, damn. it's Don Felder. Right. Don Felder was on this album. And in the past, they got Don Felder because in the past, when Glenn wrote, like, they didn't really have, their lead style didn't match up because when Glenn wanted to write rock songs, Bernie was not a good rock lead guitarist to play the leads on that. And vice versa, when Bernie would write the awesome country songs, Glenn was not a good on the country leads. So they got... Don, cause Don Felder, because Felder was killer on either, yeah. right? Fingers Felder is what they called him. He could pick everything from his nose to his arsehole. That's right. That's a, that's exactly what they said. I believe that's a Don Henley quote, actually. 
So, once again, the Eagles went back to work with Simzik on 1975's One of These Nights, released June 10th, 1975. This was the first number one record for the Eagles, and it stayed there for four weeks after debuting at number 25 on the U.S. to 200 four weeks earlier. It featured the single's title track, One of These Nights, Lying Eyes, and Take It to the Limit, which was the band's first number one single. And later on, that becomes a contested song that kind of, you know, leads to the baseball game that we're going to talk about. <laughs> take it to the limit. Yes, yes. This has all just been building up to take it to the limit? Yes. <laughs> Rolling Stone, once again, was not that impressed and gave the record three and a half stars. Oh, they get a oh. half now. Yeah, they got a, they got a half star boost here. So Stephen Holden uh, said he liked the album but didn't consider it a great album. He was impressed by the band's quote ensemble playing calling it or sorry by the band's ensemble playing calling it quote unprecedentedly excellent but said they quote lack an outstanding singer. <laughs> and there's like seven of them in the band too. Yeah, They're pretty good at yeah. it. That's hilarious. None of you guys are good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that quote while many of their times are pre- many of their tunes are pretty none are eloquent. Okay. Kind of see that. Yeah. yeah. Quote, and for all their worldly perspe- perceptiveness, the Eagles' lyrics never transcend Hollywood's slickness. Their hard rock has always seemed a bit forced, constructed more for commercial considerations than from any urgent impulse to boogie. And when the Eagles attempt to communicate wild sexuality, they sound only boyishly enthused. These limitations, however, seem to be built into the latter-day concept of Southern California rock, of which the Eagles remain the unrivaled exponents. You know what? I feel like I haven't disagreed with a single thing. I've <laughs> Me neither. Because it's true. Whenever, whenever they start coming to a, a sick rock lick, yeah, you can tell that they're just like... In the uh, studio with just not a smile to be found. It's no, just like, they're just like, this will make us some fucking money. Let's just, <laughs> Let's just crank this just, shit just out. Just make sure that my, my bass drum's nice and loud, okay, shithead? Yeah, shithead, just crank it up. Give me a line of coke Yeah, give me here. a couple like, of buttons and like, yeah, uh, some yeah, scotch. Yeah. Yeah. Fry is just flying on blow at this point, too. Right? Oh, absolutely. Like, yeah. so, His mom is like, that's fine. Yeah. Don't smoke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's no weed, is it? Yeah. Uh, so it's their commercial breakthrough, and the Rolling Stone is still kind of mad. <laughs> whatever you know uh, which is probably secretly driving particularly henley and especially fry nuts which i'll explain in a second so now what bernie Ledden leaves probably because of like mostly creative differences they're going in more of a rock di- direction he's a country guy so uh like while they're doing some bernie's kind of at this point like kind of just you know chilling with them in the studio staring off into space not really having a good time one night in the studio apparently they were working and bernie was asked what he thought about something and he stretched out like this and he was like i think i'm going surfing and he just left (laughs) and went surfing sweet yeah yeah but eventually he he did come back eventually and then you know there was another show where you know glenn is probably tweaking on 
on coke in the back room and he's like freaking out and bernie's all mellow and chill probably smoked a joint or whatever and he takes his beer and he pours it on glenn's head and says you need to chill out man yeah i'm sure that did the trick yeah if there's anything that really mellows me out when i'm pissed off is a guy pouring a beer on me i'm like oh there you go thanks thanks for that refreshing uh yeah so these guys are you know kind of not getting along so ultimately bernie leaves so now they're down to two guitarists and they still want a three guitar attack and because he had the same manager producer and label and fit quite well into the eagles debaucherous lifestyle joe walsh joined the band shortly after the one of these nights tour in 1975 so walsh joins them and they've got these shows opening for the rolling stones glenn fry said it was good for joe to join the band because joe walsh was an interesting group of guys (laughs) (laughs) yeah He's out of his mind completely, but yeah, honestly, yeah. that's exactly what the Eagles needed. It was a little bit of down-to-earth, yeah. and that's that's what Joe is, yeah. you know? He, that guy is authentic ears, yeah. as hell. Yeah. And, yeah, uh, yeah that, that was a really great choice. Yeah. So he joins the band. They're, they're, they're in the middle of this dispute with Geffen at the time because Geffen sold Asylum to Warner Brothers and gave Jackson Brown his publishing back. Geffen had half and half publishing with each of the bands and when he sold his half to Warner he also gave he gave Jackson his half back because he was his first artist and Uh. introduced him to several other artists so he kind of felt like he owed Jackson something. Right. But the Eagles, being the Eagles, were like, what the fuck about us? You know, <laughs> we so, want our 50%. Yeah, so they, I think they sued Geffen for $10 million yeah. or something like that. So, you know, anyway, so they're in the middle of this dispute. And anyway, that's kind of neither here nor there, but kind of proves what the kind of dudes the Eagles are. So the next album for the group was the acclaimed Hotel California, which debuted at number four on the U.S. Billboard 200, peaking at number one for a combined eight weeks and going platinum after the first week, released December 8th, 1976, and featured singles New Kid in Town, Hotel California, and Life in the Fast Lane. Charlie Walters of Rolling Stone wrote that it, quote, showcased the best and worst tendencies of Los Angeles-situated rock. (laughs) So they're just like, everything they crack out at Rolling Stones is like... (laughs) This stinks. (laughs) This is like good music, but it's just terribly uninspiring. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But also said, quote, the lyrics present a convincing and unflattering portrait of the milieu itself, and that Don Henley's vocals expressed well the weary disgust of a victim or observer of the region's luxurious success. So there's like some decent praise at least. Henley, we like your lyrics, bud. So, you know, over the years they've they've got this rapport with Rolling Stone, you know, they're they're it's it's not great, but it's not terrible either. I think like they're kind of miffed by the by the, you know, reviews that aren't really that are a little bit wishy washy or maybe a little pretentious, but you know, I don't really like we say, I don't really disagree with them. But yeah. anyway, so Cameron Crow also did a cover story on them in September nineteen seventy five that showed a lot of insight into the band and it kind of painted Doug and Glenn as the leaders and maybe a little bit controlling, which I don't, I imagine, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) yeah. imagine they don't, they didn't really like that very much. Uh, But it's 
obviously true that we've seen like throughout history, but it's really evident here when Don Felder felt that he was promised two songs on the record there. He, he felt I was going to get to sing two songs, lead vocal on the record. And one of them that he felt that way was victim of love. And he brought it in and apparently they actually like recorded him doing the vocal, but then they got Irving Azoff, the manager to take him out to lunch and while they were out on lunch, they got Henley to cut the vocal. Yeah. And then put that over it. And I mean, for who knows what he was like at the time, but 40 years later or 50 years later, Felder is like pretty humble saying like, I mean, I couldn't really argue, you know, Don Henley was a way better singer yeah, than me. Yeah. You, know? you don't really get better rock singer than Don Henley. Yeah. Think, you know, it's... exactly. Right. But, but in, in contrast, 40 years later, Don Henley still has this quote. Felder asking to sing on Victim of Love would be like me asking to play lead guitar on Hotel California. Just didn't make sense. That's the thing. Is he's like, like still like, yeah, fucking right. I'm the best. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and he, not only he was like, all right, guys, I, I gave you Hotel California, okay? Can you guys just cut me off a little piece of something yeah, here? Exactly. Like, just so I don't look like a jerk in front of my wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and they're like, hell no. Why don't you go out to dinner with the manager? And yeah. no, we're not going to do anything sneaky at all, Felder. Don't worry yeah. about it. <laughs> so, so um, now we're in early 77, and the Eagles are touring the Hotel California album. And uh, the years of party- partying and tours on the road are starting to cause tensions and patience is starting to wear within for Randy Meisner, the bass player. Mm-hmm. And a, but a way for the band to blow off some steam uh, was on their off days go out to a local park and play some softball. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're here. What, what's, what's the forty eight minutes? Holy crap! We're forty eight minutes in. I didn't. Uh, so they'd organize games with their crew to play against each other, and they'd play against each other, bands and crew, and maybe against the local radio station and crew who might have organized the concert. So like they, you know, come into town and you know the radio station and send a team amazing. out, or that'd be great. Right? Yeah, imagine just like. Sitting at oh, who would be it would be like oh the Foo Fighters want to play us in soccer today. <laughs> Rest in peace. Yeah. So Hen- Henley said about it quote This is healthy, you know. It promotes good feelings amongst the guys. It keeps us from killing each other. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Big time. Yeah. So Fry added quote We can yell at each other on the baseball diamond, and then that way we don't have to yell at each other while we're out working. <laughs> I don't think I don't think it Come worked. Come on, Don, hit a single, hit a single. You know, hit it hard, like you could fucking hit that bass drum, you piece of shit. <laughs> when you watch, like, there's there's video of them like playing this in. These where I got the quotes from the, in, in the documentary. documentary, and he's like, you know, Glenn is like yelling first pl- bass coach and he's like run 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 shit you know like he's like fucking so serious like, so serious well, about one it, of the main know? takeaways from that part of that documentary because i think i remember like that's like the one thing from that doc that i took home with me was like is them playing baseball and fries swings he gets, he gets struck struck out and he's just being a dick about it yeah. <laughs> throws the bat and kicks <laughs> yeah. some sand someone's like dude what's your problem he goes i, I haven't been laid in yeah, a while okay? laid yeah and then it's like i just i was sitting there on my couch going What's it been? Forty 
45 minutes <laughs> yeah, since someone's yeah, been swinging from your dong? Exactly. <laughs> he hits a home run at one point. He just pimps it. Like he's, you know. Yeah, I feel like you're fine. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're all right. Yeah. You have a contract that says you're allowed to do drugs at your job. Yeah. You've been banging 10s since 1963. One so. of the stipulations of one of your employees was letting you do drugs in a studio, man. Like, so they're ripping these softball games every where they go yeah he says uh quote i can get all my frustrations out quote we play softball with the crew when we have a day off it helps me get some of the tensions out that's really what i do to keep from going crazy <laughs> what a psycho yeah, yeah. yeah honestly <laughs> it didn't seem to be relieving the tensions very well however walsh said in the documentary that soon after joining the band glenn fry told him i get nuts sometimes <laughs> and i'm sorry <laughs> Dear God. <laughs> Should be like a very intimidating thing to like hear as soon as you join, unless you're Joe Walsh. You well, know? yeah, but I think Joe Walsh could take that in stride. But <laughs> I, I, anytime you're joining a band, and the first thing somebody's saying to you is like, "Oh, sorry, man. Sometimes I lose it. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Yeah. It's yeah. not great. Sometimes I do a lot. Do you want some coke?" <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, as I'm illustrating here, tensions are still running high despite these baseball games, and Randy Meisner is not down with singing Take It to the Limit anymore. Oh. Okay? He's insecure. He's, like, he's probably the most laid-back, like, chill guy. There's a part in the doc where he's like, I just want five guys to be playing music happy together on stage. It's like, this is the wrong band for you to be in, Randy. Like, so he's insecure about this really high note that he has to hit in the lead at the very end of the song. Mm-hmm. And eventually he's, you know, he's had, he's had some vodka the night before and been out partying with some girls and he's tired. And this night he tells the manager, fuck it. I'm not doing it anymore. Tell Glenn, I'm not doing it. So Glenn freaks out and, Tells them basically, you know, lots of people came to see us play that may have never seen us play that song before. Some people might have been waiting years. You know, you think I want to play Take It Easy every fucking night, but you can't just say fuck them. You know, so. <laughs> so he's, good impersonation he's, right there. He's freaking out. He's getting all impassioned and everything. So eventually they got fed up with Randy and somewhat discompassionately told him essentially, fine, if you don't want to do it anymore, why don't you just quit? So tensions are now at their highest and things finally erupted between Fry and Meisner at a show in East Troy, Wisconsin on September 3rd, 1977. The encore was supposed to be take it to the limit. And after three or four refusals, Glenn Fry backed up uh, from Randy and said, well, fuck you then. And wound up, he was going to swing at him. Police officers backstage moved in towards the bandmates, but... (laughs) About in towards the bandmates who were about to face off to break it up, but Henley intervened, telling the officers to quote, stay out of this. It's Whoa. personal and private. Real fucking private. <laughs> See, this is what I love about sports and entertainment, is it's the only place that like police jurisdiction somehow doesn't work. You can watch two hockey players or or two whole baseball teams come together and beat the shit out of each other on the field, and the police are like Everyone, yeah. just, Everyone stay, just stay back. Just stay, stay in back. Let them sort it out. They're fighting each other. It's fine. For me, it's just like, imagine you went to the show and like you probably maybe had an edible or something earlier that day. You watch the entire show, right? Because this happens at the encore. Like, yeah. great. Start to finish, probably a great show. The encore is 
them threatening to beat the shit out of each other <laughs> on stage in front of microphones. Just like, <laughs> you know That's what? the Eagles, baby. <laughs> yeah. Right after playing a song called Take It Easy. <laughs> <laughs> and Peaceful Easy Feeling. <laughs> So at this point, there really was no choice but for Randy to leave the toxic situation and go home to his family. He's got like a wife and two kids at home and like partying with these guys every night. So um, where am I? So uh, they replaced Randy with Timothy B. Schmidt, but it was another two years or so before they made another album. But that's it. I'm pretty much done talking about the Eagles' career in music, okay? Okay. So... Glenn Fry is wound up, you know, he's probably like he's, he's his band needs to go on a break now. They're they're looking at Timothy B. Schmidt to be the new bass player, but you know, they're taking a bit of a break right now. So five days later, after Randy left the band, September 8th, 1977, Rolling Stone wrote something in their random notes section talking about Joe Walsh's new solo record he was recording. And also took a dig at the rest of the Eagles that seemed to set Glenn Fry off. Charles M. Young wrote, quote, I'm, I'm leaving out the part about Joe Walsh's album, but he, quote, the rest of the Eagles on their first vacation in three years seem more interested in finding a softball team they can beat, having lost in recent weeks to teams fielded by Andrew Gold, Jimmy Buffett, employees <laughs> of several San Francisco radio stations, and their own road crew. Ooh, okay. Yeah, so it's it's getting, getting like, beaten by Jimmy Buffett is yeah, a, yeah. A, 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 any I mean, sport. <laughs> Yeah. It would be a tough one on the ego. What, I don't care who you are. I think Jimmy Buffett, like, if I lost like a, a badminton match or like a mini putt <laughs> Jimmy Buffett, I'd be okay with it. But that's it. So I, I should mention that like this is this is the straw that breaks the camel's back because like, you know, over the years except for that one cover story, the Eagles have not given really interviews to anyone really for that matter, but Rolling Stone, they haven't given any interviews. And so because they can't do that, they just, Charles M. Young just keeps making digs mm -hmm. at the Eagles in the random notes. Every time he, he covers them. Like the only reason he's covering them is when they lose softball games. <laughs> he doesn't put, he doesn't put when they win. So it's just like pissing Glenn Fry. He's Tremendous. probably looking at it like, oh, let's get to the sports section of Rolling Stone here. <laughs> Says we fucking lost again. We won three games this week, right? So <laughs> I want to know who else was on the team or whether the Eagles were just like, no, only five guys on our team. <laughs> I just, yeah. I just yeah. want to be Glenn Fry's handyman. Like, you know how many fists go through drywall in that house in the 80s? <laughs> It was just never ending. You just the truck never leaves the driveway. <laughs> Another panel, then. <laughs> <laughs> so as I mentioned, this is getting Glenn Fry's goat and the Eagles singer guitarist, who was often seen wearing sports jerseys and a Notre Dame football sweater on tour, was somewhat of a jock in the scene. Uh, fired off an immediate response that read, "Quote." What you have failed to mention is that the Eagles won two out of three games against Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> Anytime you pencil-pushing desk jockeys want to put on your spikes, we'll kick your ass, too. Oh, my God. Oh, man. He, it's He's a challenge. It. The gauntlet is down, my it friend. It's a challenge. <laughs> the gauntlet is down. I would also like everybody to know that I beat Jimmy Buffett in two out of three <laughs> yeah, games. That's right. so, yeah. Just for the record, just at least get that <laughs> one straight, is, you know? This is baseball. <laughs> yeah. No one wins every game. <laughs> yeah, we lost, but we won too. 
So Rolling Stone accepted and suggested the terms that if they won, the Eagles would grant them an interview. And if the Eagles won, the magazine would treat them to dinner at New York City's best hot dog stand. <laughs> so, it's tongue in cheek, I guess. I guess. I'm like, is that a real place? Yeah. <laughs> The Eagles counter proposing the losers make a $5,000 donation to UNICEF, which Rolling Stone agreed, and as well, the pot was sweetened. An Eagle victory meant they could write up the game unedited in the magazine, and a Rolling Stone victory would earn them a short interview. Interesting. So. They already already won. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. I I mean, yeah, yeah, Rolling Stone is a win-win either way here. Exactly, yeah. 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 They'll all probably get hot dogs either way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just imagine that. It, shows, it just shows you how like angry Fry was about it. He's like, yeah, whatever. I don't give a fuck about the terms. I'm going to kick your fucking ass. Yeah, it's just, you can write about the game. You can write about us kicking your fucking ass. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, earn, yeah, earn the short interview, which the Eagles had avoided since some of the perceived slights and their reviews and articles. Fry said that the L.A said to the L.A. Times before the game on May 8th, 1978 at Lado Field, uh, USC. So they got this like game. It's at University of Southern California. Okay. So, I was going to ask, where is this game taking place? Yeah. I thought it was going to be like Central Park, but now it's, no, no, it's USC. Okay. Yeah, USC. Quote, with the exception of Cameron Crowe's cover story on us, I don't think that the magazine has been particularly insightful as far as it comes to the Eagles. When Hotel California came out, they didn't even give us the lead interview. It was just treated like, oh, another album from the Eagles. Ho-hum. <laughs> so he's, he, he is. His ego was bruised that yeah. they didn't fucking so this give them ba- the cover. This and baseball, shit. or this softball game, I should say, is, is, is basically just... It's retribution. Man. It is It is retribution in every sense. It's years of slights. That's right. As you've just been like progressively getting more and more money and more and more cocaine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Definitely more and more paranoid. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Rooting for the Rolling Stone on this one. Yeah, I I'd know. Say. That I would really, be, really make me feel good to see uh, yeah. Henley sitting in his, <laughs> his, his car in the parking lot after the game just Crying. angrily drinking a Gatorade. Yeah. Like, this sucks. <laughs> Chasing it with whiskey. <laughs> whiskey aid. <Yeah. laughs> Something I invented. Don't steal it. <laughs> quote, quote, I thought this was going to be musicians versus critics, but they've got guys on their team from the mail room, the camera room, and everywhere else. They've also got a couple of ringers. That's okay. We've got some surprises, too. Oh. <laughs> So the Eagles packed the crowd with 5,000 fans and friends and called upon their own ringer, L.A. Kings defenseman Gary Sargent. How does does Gary Sargent get... 5,000 people is a lot of people. (laughs) Fuck yeah, man. (laughs) And he was just complaining that they invited their mailboy to play (laughs) as a shortstop. So we're going to get this dude from the Kings. (laughs) (laughs) He's not a baseball player. Another pro. (laughs) Yeah. Quote, that gives us a big advantage. We used to, we're used to being in front of 20,000 people in concerts, so the noise won't bother us. But those Rolling Stone guys are accustomed to sitting alone in a room with a typewriter. They'll be nervous as hell when all those people start yelling, Fry said. I guess he forgot that they go to the same fucking concerts <laughs> to write about them. But well, anyway. and also when you're writing alone in a room to a, with a public... A, 
a magazine that is distributed to like hundreds and hundreds of You're thousands. still feeling some pressure, yeah. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> yeah. I think they get it, Glenn. <laughs> so there was a controversy before the game even started when the Eagles squad showed up to the field in metal cleats. So they're Whoa. fucking serious, man. At a last-minute huddle, it was decided that rubber cleats were the fair compromise, but the Eagles scoffed. Henley said, quote, they must think Frey and I, Fry and I are psychotic and out to get their guys, so we're stuck with these peace cleats. <laughs> peace cleats. <laughs> I am going to call those peace cleats from the re- right now. It's beautiful. Metal cleats are spikes and rubber cleats are peace cleats. That is it. (laughs) They they just, I mean, I guess every other game they played, they just played with the metal cleats. So I I don't understand why people are so, I mean, I guess the Eagles are trying to hurt people. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, This is about retribution. I know. know. Yeah. So anyways, the game was underway with a crowd peppered with celebrities, the likes of Daryl Hall, Joni Mitchell, Don Fagan of Steely Dan and Chevy Chase. Uh, in the first <laughs> inning, Eagles apparently uh, Daryl Hall and Chevy Chase spend a lot more time in the Rolling Stone dugout than, oh, than, than the other ones there. Just, uh, like you know, they, they, the Eagles invited you, man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so in the first inning, Eagles pitcher Henley, except for one walk, retired the Rolling Stone batters with ease. In the bottom half, the Eagles took a 3-0 lead with a double by tour manager Richard Hernandez and triples by Chicago's bassist Peter Cetera and concert promoter Terry Bassett. So he just got everybody in there. You know, Chicago's bassist is on the team. Yeah, they got, they got some tour manager. I mean, I, I guess that makes sense. I, they had to have more than just five people in the on the field. Right, right. I mean, and, I figured there would be... They have enough to field a whole team like with them and their crew, but I don't know. Don, oh, I actually almost came up with a baseball joke, my first of the night, and just bombed it. (laughs) (laughs) Tripped on it. You want a second shot? (laughs) No? I think it was going to do something with Felder to Fielder, but, you know, it's already gone. Uh, (laughs) We're past it. We're past it. Uh, the Stone team tied the score at three in the top of three and held the bases loaded with just one out, but Henley settled down and got Joe Klein and the next batter just after Klein had ripped a bases-loaded foul ball just down the right field line. So he stranded all the runners here. Oh. So it's still 3-3. Mm-hmm. In the bottom of the third, and then again in the fourth, the Eagles added three runs in each inning, jumping out to a commanding 9-3 to lead. But Fry encouraged his team to keep their foot on the gas. After failing to score in the fifth, he told his team, quote, No more quiet innings, guys. We've got to keep coming at them. Six runs isn't enough. Wait for your pitch. Yeah. <laughs> Which I guess, I mean, in softball, that's kind of true. You know, six runs is, is yep. not a lot in softball. We, we and we learned that runs, in a baseball game, a true baseball game today. Blown today. But it's, yeah. it's not really like that's really going to make you go like, oh, yeah, maybe that's good. Yeah, yeah. So that's like this, uh, the equivalent of him just going to the dugout and going, all right, guys. It's official. We want a pitcher, not a belly itcher, okay? <laughs> Comprende? It's exactly what he was saying. Yeah, exactly. Exactly what it was. Uh, the team responded with the first four batters in the sixth reaching base. Fry then cleared the bases with a double when, and was about ready to claim victory. Jan Wenner, the Rolling Stone editor-publisher, began to reach for the $5,000 check to UNICEF. 
trailing now 15 to 5 the game all but decided Wenner sent in a female member of his business staff to pitch to the macho prone rock stars for the ninth and she got Fry to pop out <laughs> and Wenner howled with delight at Fry's dissatisfaction shouting across the field to Irving Azoff that was worth the five grand <laughs> <laughs> oh man menace Rolling Stone scored three more in the ninth, but 15-8 was as close as they'd get, and the Eagles team silenced their critics. See what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> uh. Quote, divine retribution. Those guys always get the last word when they write about us, but we showed them today, <laughs> Fry said. Wenner defended Rolling Stone's performance like a big league manager, saying, quote, look at the scoreboard, 19 hits. That's more than the Eagles got. If we could have just tightened our defense, we got jittery. Still, take away those errors in the sixth, and who knows? <laughs> I love how serious everyone is taking yeah, this. Best. Even the post-game interviews, they're like, you know, we tried our best. You know, if, if a couple things go a different way. Dude, there's you know? a full recap of this from May 9th, 1978 in the LA Times. Oh, like, my God. You know, that's where a bunch of these quotes are coming from. Oh, um, but that didn't damper Fry's celebrations. He chased teammate and newest member of the Eagles, Timothy B. Schmidt, who had just replaced Randy Meisner months before. He who had collected four hits and earned himself the game ball for the day earned himself a champagne shower from Fry. <laughs> the LA Times wrote, On this day, the sword, or at least the softball bat, was mightier than the pen. <laughs> yes, sir. Fry said, I'm going to savor this one for a long time. <laughs> That's the story when the Eagles beat uh, the Rolling the Stones. Rolling Stone softball. magazine. Well, the Rolling Stones, not the Rolling Stones. Yeah, <laughs> at softball, 15 to 8, because Glenn Fry was like, stop fucking writing about how we only lose. We beat Jimmy Buffett two games to one, you sons of bitches. <laughs> this, is a, this is probably one of the few times in history... That a softball game has settled a dispute between two parties, but probably not the only one. Yeah, I just love the yeah. genius fact that like Rolling Stone knew that that was their soft spot and was yeah. just kind of chipping away at them, just to be you know knowing that that's their soft their their safe space to be like yeah this is where we kind of blow off some steam and <laughs> secretly take it way too seriously and <laughs> Rolling Stone knew it right out of the gate. Just I think I know how to get to these guys. Yeah, Let's make guys, fun of their bad. Yeah, you guys want to do an interview? Uh, no, make no, fun we're of good. We're good. We're good. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I know. You guys don't like talking because you you can't hit or pitch either. What? <laughs> yeah. No, no, nothing. No, it's cool. It's cool. It's it's just, cool. We'll just put some just stuff in the like notes. It, it was like a five-year project of reverse psychology on them. They were just like, okay, we got the crow interview and that pissed them off, and they're pro now they don't want to talk to us. But you know, Charles Young was like, I know how to get them. Yeah, exactly. I know how to get them. It's like, I'll give it a five, or three out of five for uh, Desperado. The bass playing was terrible. And a lot of pop flies this season. I mean, <laughs> yeah. really giving up a lot of points. Anyways. <laughs> Glenn Fry's fielding percentage has really <laughs> suffered on this album. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, fuck. I mean, oh, I did Honestly, you'd mentioned to me it was about a softball game. Uh, like a half hour into it, Ed, I was honestly like, I am not sure in any way how yeah, this, this is going to go is, into baseball. This is not baseball. really too much of a baseball one, but this is, you know, no, it's kind of baseball. It's a baseball. You worked it. You worked it into the baseball. The major league wasn't even. It was about a movie. 
That, yeah, well, that's true. That's, that's like, true. you know, it's a movie you know? about baseball, but you know, this is this was we are just telling stories, you know, at the end yeah, of the day. Exactly. But, so, you know. But I don't know, the the story of these guys getting uh so pissed off and like, yeah. there's, there's something about like a real controlling alpha dude being really super worked up about the game of baseball, it just kind of fills my heart with joy. I just love yeah. that they just wanted to blow off Steve. We just have we just have some fun softball. <laughs> They're taking it so seriously, yeah. and just uh, even even when you're up fifteen to five, that you pop up and you're mad, and everyone. Well, first of all, like <laughs> the chauvinism there was like you popped up against a girl. <laughs> yeah, in front of Joni <laughs> yeah. Mitchell. That was, yeah. that was worth it. And Joni Mitchell sitting there just <laughs> hating yeah, like fuck you. Guys. Wait, Joni Mitchell's dead at this point, yeah. right? Oh God, yeah. No, not in, not in the in real life. Joni Mitchell. Oh, I'm thinking about the other one, Janis Joplin. Yeah. <laughs> this is my. This is. I am not good at. You the, fuck the musicians' names. No, up I did. I'm like. I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> anyways. Anyways, that was awesome, Spence. Uh, once again, where where can people see you play some live tunes yeah, and whatnot? Catch me and Janelle Heath at uh, the Emmett Ray from eight to ten on uh, April 29th, and then catch my death metal band. Face plant, we're playing at the rock pile on May 6th with Liquor Messiah. That's hell yeah. So it'd be pretty sweet. Yeah, come out. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, remember to uh, do, listen to tunes and get your piano tuned. That's right. Um, Edgy, right. thank you so much for, for bringing us this. Uh, this rock soft, story. Soft rock and roll baseball history. You're welcome. Thank you so yeah, much. It was very enjoyable. Yeah, no, I did not expect that whatsoever. So, uh, yeah, until next time, follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball. I'm sh- at Sean Do Baseball. He's at Ed's Do Baseball. And give Instagram. us a follow. Oh, uh, wait. Uh, we fucked this up. We fucked this up. So give us a follow at Doing Baseball on Twitter and on Instagram at Doing.Baseball. Give Check us a out. review. Give us a review or revating on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you very much for listening to us on Podbean. And once again, thank you very much for listening. I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. We're doing the baseball. Thank you so much. Till next time. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs>